The ability to give thanks is 100% about self-perception. This isn't always addressed when people talk about gratitude, but it is an inescapable fact. When you believe that you are entitled to something, when you deserve something, or when you think you've earned something, you don't say thank you. 90% of trophies are received without thanks. 99% of pay stubs are received without thanks. 100% of taxes are collected without thanks. And that's because there's an assumption behind each one of those, is that those things are given because they are an obligation. There's no sense of charity or love behind the offering when it's given. It's simply what has to be done. The book of Job is, is a book about wisdom, and it is written in, in part to answer the, the issue of theodicy. How can a, an all-powerful and good God allow for evil to, and suffering to take place? It's also written to, to deal with the problem of pain and the, and the suffering that, that belongs to an individual believer. And answers, answers to those questions are certainly found in this book. But the, but the purpose of this book is... in. in in the book of Job is very much about responding to the issue of retribution theology. And retribution theology is this idea that people get what they deserve. They get what's coming to them. And specifically that they get what's coming to them at the hand of God. Good people get the good things in life and bad people get the bad things in life. And whatever you see happening to someone is an indication behind the scenes of how God is responding to how they are living. God punishes and rewards people in the world in direct response to their actions. And we have to admit, it's not without reason that people believe this. There are scriptural teachings that, that reinforce this, but only in part. A theology that's so narrow, though, overlooks the idea of final rewards. It misses the fact that, that what's happening in life right now may not be what is going to happen in the life hereafter, that God has a judgment that is saved up for the end of time. It also misses the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God in little things that are going on that we don't quite understand. And it leaves out, of course, what we've understood from this profound book that God has wisdom in how he oversees all of his creation. Last time we saw in part that God's answer to injustice and inequity is, is, is found in himself. How he is also going to be dealing with evil. This is part of the grand plan. Not only do we understand that God is sovereign over all the little things and all the details, such as we saw in those animals that he gave us a, a Torah, but in particular when he gave those, those particular evils of, of the behemoth and the Leviathan, he reminded us that he is also the divine warrior who is the answer to those problems of evil. And he is able to do what no one else is capable of doing, of ending their torments and tortures for believers. To comprehend all those things, to, to apprehend rightly who God is, is a necessary goal that we have in understanding the book of Job. That he is not Santa Claus dispensing lumps of coal to the undeserving and, and, and gifts, extravagant gifts to the deserving. We learn to think of God in, in a much grander way than that, to see how much larger God is than that. And in, course, in, in the course of that, we're reminded that we don't thank processes, such as the giving out of rewards or paying people. We thank persons. We recognize people for their gifts. And so certainly we would do that tonight as we consider the book of Job. And so let's pray together as we come back again to that, that example we have of Job and his repentance in the beginning part of chapter 42. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we look to you for the provision that only you can grant. Your Spirit's light. We pray, Father, that as we come to the word tonight that we would be humbled by it. Humbled particularly as we come into your presence the way that Job does, so that we are reminded of who our God is.
and what he accomplishes for us, that we might leave with thankful hearts, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me remind you again, I know I do this every time, but because some people are sometimes new, because sometimes you forget, because there's a few weeks to go on between courses, let me remind you of the book of Job. It's in part narrative, a tiny part, and a large part poetry. In the narrative part, we meet Job, we're introduced to his, his person, we find out that Job is a man who is righteous and who is wealthy. That he is this one who would give the, 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 the best picture of retribution theology at work. He is, he is all good in every way as far as everyone is concerned. Everyone respects him in the highest order and he has the good things in life to show it. He has an abundance of crops. He has, he has an incredible amassed amount of livestock. He has servants galore and he has ten glorious children, seven sons and threes, three daughters and everything is right with Job. But after we meet Job, we're taken up into heaven. We get a heaven's eye view of Job's life. And particularly in that heavenly courtroom, we're introduced to God who is overseeing all things. These angelic beings that are coming to, to him. And one of them is Satan himself. And he is challenged by God to consider God's servant, Job. There's a brief de debate that's followed by the accusers saying and indicating that, well, the only reason Job is good is because good things happen in his life. And you take those things away, he won't bless you. And so Job becomes an object of a test. And he's going to become a cautionary tale. Because and when Satan is granted his way with Job, everything that's good in his life is destroyed. At the end of it, he's childless. He's penniless. He's tortured. He's sick. He's resented by his wife and his friends come to him in sympathy because they come to him finding him sitting on the garbage deed, scraping himself with broken pottery because he's covered from head to toe with boils. His friends come and they mourn with him for seven days. They, 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 they silently stand by as Job's friends. But finally, at the end of those seven days, Job breaks the silence. And he begins to lament the most pathetic lament that you've ever heard. Not only does he lament the condition of his life, not only does he, he lament the fact that he, is alive, that he is alive, but he actually goes on to lament the very day that he was born. And he says it would be better if that day were blotted out of history. If there were a curse on that day such that it never happened, such, so that Job could never have been even born and brought into the world. That is the beginning of the poetic dialogues and it invokes a conversation. The friends come in and they decide, okay, Job, that's enough. And they begin to weigh in. And what do they weigh in with? Well, as friends, they want what's best for Job. And what they can see is obvious is that Job has fallen into this horrible condition because of some sin. They don't know what it is. But they have their suspicions, and they know that it's bad. And so they start soft. They, they, they go with the, the, slow, the, the slow pitch. They try and ease him into it, but he's not budging. He won't repent of the sin that they're sure is there. They pursue him more and more, and they become a greater accuser than Satan, it would seem, himself. Job's friends all deserve what is happening to him. They, they, they all think that what is happening to him is deserved. Job believes his, his suffering is is undeserved. He believes it's a mistake, but a mistake on God's part. And so God breaks in and eventually he's going to speak. And so he gives his answers. And the first answer is one that, that's somewhat bizarre to us. He takes Job on a tour of his creation. He, he, he takes him out to the countryside. He takes him to the animals that he doesn't own. And he shows him the magnificence of all the details of these creatures which he's, he oversees. He, he talks about them from, from, from birth to death, how they're provided for, and shows his, his handiwork and these things that are not part of Job's world. The dominion that Job thinks he has doesn't go very far. 
At the end of that, Job is left silent. He has nothing to say. He's been humbled in the presence of God. And that gives room for a second speech. And the second speech is a doozy. And it's perhaps even more bizarre than the first one. Instead of this parade of all of these animals, these undomesticated animals of the countryside, instead he brings before Job two monsters, the behemoth and the leviathan. And the behemoth is this massive creature in the river. It sounds a little bit like a hippo. Do you read the details and you find out, no, this is way beyond any hippo I've ever seen. The image of it being in the river, able to swallow the river itself. The, the image of it bringing offerings down from the mountainsides, that people worship this creature. And then Leviathan, this, this monster of the sea who breathes fire. And both are, are fearful. Both are, are destroyers of men. They're, they're, they're these kind of creatures that are beyond any ability that man has to approach. And, and, and God dares Job. He said, he said, take a tussle if you think you can. See how it turns out for you. And Job is more humbled by this. And that brings us to where we are this evening as we come to this passage. And these verbs, you, or these, these, these final verses here that Job speaks, they're important verbs. Verses. They're verses that we need to consider because they are, in fact, going to be the last words that you hear Job speak. And so we want to know what, what, what's happening with Job. What is he learning in this context? And, and hopefully by this, we understand our contention tonight is this, that by our knowledge of the Holy One, by a greater knowledge and a fuller knowledge and a truer knowledge of the, of the Holy One, we will grow in gratitude and we will grow in contentment and we will grow in peace. And so we want to see this awesome God that Job comes to worship. Well, look at, look at the, the second verse in there. When Job begins to speak, this is what he says in verse 2. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Job is professing something here. He is testifying to the fact that he has a new knowledge. He has had an encounter with the truth and the truth that he encounters is who God is. In the first place, in the first speech, we would see that God is the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. Everything in the heavens and the earth and the sea, all of that belongs to him. He has an intimate knowledge of the, of the details of every part of it. And not only does he have a knowledge of these things, but he's overseeing and sustaining all of these, these creatures which he has made. And secondly, that God is a victorious warrior. That God is able to overcome the greatest evils in the world. The speech gave Job a new sense of confidence in God. He's, if you remember the fact that throughout this book, Job has been very aware that, that, that God is a, a sovereign God, that he has power over all things. And so you would think this is perhaps not new, but part of Job's design throughout was to get an audience with God. And why did he want an audience with God? Well, he wanted an audience with God because he believed that somewhere along the way, God had made a mistake. Somewhere along the way, God had had an oversight. Somewhere, God had accidentally let these things happen in Job's life. It's like they were meant for someone else, but they fell on Job. But now he has a new knowledge. He understands that nothing escapes the sovereign will of God. And he also understands that the sovereign will of God is intensely personal. Not for a single moment has God actually taken his eye off of Job. Every lost child, every lost servant, every lost sheep, camel, donkey, every lost crop, every lost layer of skin that he's given up on his boil-covered body, that none of those things has been lost on God. 
Those tears didn't sneak past God. They're not punishment that was meant for someone more deserving that was mistakenly inflicted upon Job. Everything landed as it was designed. It went right to its target and it didn't go a fraction beyond. Remember, even from the very beginning, God clearly put limitations on what Satan was able to do. The chaos monster's death and Satan, behemoth, Leviathan, they rained on Job, but only so far as God allowed. And just as the Lord showed himself mighty in that, in that last chapter in, in 41, when he, when he revealed himself to be the divine warrior who could handle them without trouble, so he could do with every terror in his life. The Sabians who stole Job's donkeys, they would be vanquished. The fire which, which came down upon the sheep, that would be extinguished. The Chaldeans who took his camels, they would be crushed. The wind, it would be stilled. Just as we saw when Christ came to the world and was able to still the wind. In the time of all of those evils, the place that they would have, not only in Job's life, but in every other, every other life on the planet in which those miseries were invoked, God was sovereign over every one of those, and they would come to an end. Such the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 16, 20, when he said, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Meaning that the time is limited. There's a short duration. It's not going to last forever. These things Job could not see until he was shown them. It, 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 took, it took a revelation from God coming into his life and appearing to him the way he did and explaining what he did that would allow Job to see this because he, he wasn't going to get, the, get that by looking around at the world. It wasn't part of the story he had been told. It wasn't the folk wisdom of the day. This was not a knowledge that, that, that belonged to the world. It was, a, it was a special revelation that came from God himself. That revelation moved him. It changed him. It was a new knowledge. It informed what he thought about, his, about the, the world in which he lived and even his own condition because he had met God in a new way. And so what does Job do? Look at verse 3. There Job confesses his, his, his confusion and his ignorance. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. He has done what God condemned him for. He had darkened Counsel without knowledge. He had obscured the truth with his own words. Not only the words of those around him, but he himself had been guilty of it. And again, that, that, that's tough for us to remember because Job started off so well. I mean, that's what we find in his opening chapters in, in 1 and 2 when we meet Job and these horrible things happen in his life. How does Job respond? Look, look back if you want to at Job 1.20. After Job lost his camels and his sheep and his donkeys and his servants and his children... Job said this, it says, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Perfect. That, that is the best response that you could possibly give to that kind of situation. And the text tells us, it says in verse 22, in all these things... Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So he, he started out well. And sometimes we forget that part, that as we get into those middle chapters, that the, the long poetic portions where we forget that Job had said and responded the right way initially. Thereafter, Job became covered head to toe with painful boils. And, and this was the clear indication to his wife. Okay, you know, whatever happened before... Could have been me, could have been you, who knows what, what what's, could have been the children. Maybe, you know, that was, that was what deserved it. 
But then when Job is covered with boils, his wife comes to him and she tells him, curse God and die. Just get it over with because we know you're wrong. Job responded in 2.10, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? Beautiful. What a a glorious response to say that, yeah, I I trust a sovereign God. And again, it it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He said the right thing. He did the right thing. Everything looks good. There was no secret sin involved in Job's life such that he deserved what what was going to happen to him or what had happened to him. But what happened thereafter? Imagine yourself contemplating the loss of all these things, most especially your children, and then being mired in the kind of pain, the physical torture that his body was in. What, what do you think would happen to you if that were you? If you could compartmentalize and you could narrow down in, in, in that, that one moment, that instant, you could respond with this, this wonderful truth, what Scripture affirms was a right and a good statement. But could you hold on to that? I think we know his collapse was reasonable. It, it, it makes sense. Job grew weak and Job, Job, Job doubted. His pain overcame him. He, he grew weary not only of living in his pain and grief, but he also came to lament his very existence and the possibility of existence. And think of the voices around him. Job is, is righteously defending his integrity. He's saying, no, I did no wrong. And his friends are accusing him one after another in repeated rounds. It's like, it's like he's, he's boxing three different men. And he has one hand tied behind his back. And, and, and one gets tired and another one ju- tags out and jumps in. And he just goes one after another. Round one, round two, round three, round four. It just keeps coming. And what are they doing? They're accusing, they're accusing, they're accusing that you did something wrong. And so he, he's defending himself. But what what does he do? He does what the Proverbs warn not to do. He answers a fool according to his folly. And he buys into the theology. He starts to believe. He's heard it so much. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. Job, fess up. Get it over with. And so in the course of the debates, he begins to accuse God of wrongdoing. He accuses God of making that mistake. Because the bitterness is growing. Everyone's turned against him. How How would he not grow bitter? But, Job, but God pays attention. God hears him. God, God sees what's going on with Job. He, he hasn't missed a thing that he said, just as he hasn't missed anything that's happened along the way. And so in back in 40, verse 8, God asked, Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? God reminds him, I didn't have to be found at fault in order for this to be made right. But this is what Job had done. He had, he had bought into the debates and he had slipped in his thinking. He had been worn down, beaten down, became tired. And in his pain, he decided to blame someone else. I think we, we, we appreciate this. It's, it's difficult to say the, theologically in a right way. I'll attempt it anyway and you can condemn me later. Job's answer was right and Job's answer was wrong. He was 100% right to see his God as sovereign over everything. Even though the immediate inflictor of the pain, the the one who who had dealt the blow was Satan himself, he was right to see that God was sovereign over this. But he was also 100% wrong to blame God for it. Because to blame someone is to assign guilt to them. And Job's pain and loss was not something for which God was to be blamed 
but something to which Job was to submit. It wasn't an evil in the sense of it was evil done by him. It wasn't a sin that God had committed, but that's what, what, what Job wanted to accuse God of. So he had in his pain, in the face of the opposition, the accusation, he lost his way. He lost the threat. He, he relied on bad thinking, his, his own bad thinking and all that around him. And he bought into retribution theology because he didn't, say a be- he didn't see a better way of thinking. I've had the privilege recently of reading Augustine's City of God. I don't know if you've been exposed to this or not. It's a, it's a long book. It's a wonderful, polemical, fighting against the, the enemies of God's people and apologetic, defending the position of God's people. It does both of these in this, in this wonderful book. As the Roman Empire is collapsing, the, the Vandals have come in and ha- have, have sacked Rome. They've taken over and inflicted all sorts of, uh, of damage on, 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 a, on a city that, and a nation that had been Christianized. And, and as, the, as the nation is collapsing, there, there is a hue and cry from Romans to say, See, this is what you get for leaving the old gods. This, this is what happens whenever you give up on the, the gods who built Rome by buying into this Christian god. And Augustine just shakes his head and he says, You know, there's a, there are better ways to understand this. It's, 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 it's wonderful in so many of the ways that he responds to that. But there's a particular, particular point where he addresses the issue of, of suffering. And the importance of how we understand who the suffering happens to. And he reminds us there there are multiple works which God is doing when people suffer. For the reprobate, it is a call to repentance. For the believer, it's a call to wait upon the Lord. And he goes on and he says this. He says, Wherefore, though good and bad men suffer alike, we must not suppose that there is no difference between the men themselves, because there is no difference in what they both suffer. For even in the likeness of the sufferings, there remains an unlikeness in the sufferers. And though exposed to the same anguish, virtue and vice are not the same thing. For as the same fire causes gold to glow brightly and shaft to smoke, and under the same flail the straw is beaten while the grain is cleansed, and as the sediment are not mixed with the oil, though they are squeezed by the vat of the same pressure, so the same violence of affliction proves, purges, clarifies the good, but damns, ruins, exterminates the wicked. And thus it is that in the same afflicted, or in the same affliction, the wicked detest God and blaspheme, while the good pray and praise. So material a difference does it make, not what ills are suffered, but what kind of man suffers them. Do you see what he's saying there? That, 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 that this kind of pressure on us is a revealer of what's going on in us. And Job has revealed deficiencies. He's, he's revealed shortcomings. He, he's, he's revealed weakness in himself. But we also want to remember the things that he's done. What he has not ceased to do throughout this book is to continue to go to God and to see God as his deliverer. Yes, he, yes, he suffered greatly. And yes, he, he made mistakes. But he was continually running to God and saying the only way out of this is through you. Augustine's useful in reminding us that, that Christians, their love is not a pay-for-play kind of thing. We don't serve God so long as He serves me. But we have, a, a, we have a, a, a steadfast disposition of loving and clinging to our God because God has first loved us and He steadfastly holds on to us. It's not event for event, but it's, it's a one-for-one one in the whole of the relationship. 
I think that helps us understand when we come to this last portion and actually to appreciate what, what's being said by Job in verses 5 and 6. Here Job testifies now to, to what's different in him, what's different about the, his disposition, how he has grown. He says in verse 5, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. There's a new recognition he had heard, remember all the things he had heard? He had heard the voices of those around him telling him, repent because something is wrong. Repent because something is wrong. Repent because you have sin that needs to, needs to come out. It needs to be presented to God so that maybe he will forgive you. And he's heard his own voice. He's heard himself testify to this. He's heard his wife accuse him. Added to that, he has all of the things that, that go on in any, any person's world. Rumors, conjectures, half-truths, folk wisdom, man-made religion. Eliphaz, back in chapter 4, he had a spirit that came to him by the night, presumably an evil spirit, saying, go accuse Job. And so he did. Job heard a lot. But he says in verse 5, but now my eyes see you. That's not to say that he saw the second person of the Trinity. Perhaps he did. Perhaps God was gracious to reveal himself in that way. But certainly in, the, in that last speech, there's a, a visual revelation of what he sees in, in the behemoth and the Leviathan. And he sees God as the divine warrior that's revealed to him. And now he knows that God is very much present and active in his life. That God was not distant. He was not far off. He was, he was not somewhere where he couldn't be reached. But he'd been there all along. And he was very much for Job and very much against his enemies. And this, this Lord would not be manipulated. He wasn't that kind of God. He didn't have to answer to Job or to anyone else on how he would overrule his, his creation. But he was present and he was working. And he was very much, it was very much the case that he had not forgotten Job for one instance. And that Job was not accidentally suffering. That was not what happened here. He hadn't been abandoned and he wasn't as helpless as he thought against the onslaught of misery and pain because he had a helper all along. Moses testified to this before his death when he spoke to the children of Israel before he departed at Mount Nebo. It says in Deuteronomy 33, 20, 26, he says, There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to help you. And in his excellency on the clouds, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, destroy. Then Israel shall dwell in safety. The fountain of Jacob alone in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? The shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Job 30, 28, Job had cried for help. But the supposition was that no one's going to answer. He was in the assembly. He says, I cry for help. Nobody steps up. But the psalmist testifies in Psalm 112.4, Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. Even better is what was proclaimed by Isaiah and Matthew and Jesus when he began his earthly ministry. It says in Matthew 4.16, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. I know this is kind of a truism, but isn't it the fact that it's, you have to be in deepest darkness before the light can be said to break through? That that's what it takes? It's got to be that lowest place 
before the help is magnified in the way that you need. You might want to think that's, a, that's just a Christian platitude to say that kind of a thing, but, but you need to understand this is, a de, this is a design feature of the Christian experience. The Apostle Paul talked about his experience with pain in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect. Where? In weakness. Not in your confidence, not in your prowess, not in your proud moments. That is not when his grace is sufficient. That's not when his strength is perfected. It's in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, Paul says, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When was the last time that you took pleasure in distress? Ladies, think, think about this. How many times have you felt that, 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 that anxiety coming over you and how many times when that anxiety came over you about about some 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 desire for you for your for your children or for your parents or for your husband or for some other circumstance how many times have you said oh i'm so glad this is happening to me it's not natural but it's supernatural it's a calling that's on us. It's something that we're meant and made for as believers to come to our God in that way, to come desperately and saying, there is no way out. There is no answer to this. There's no way to solve this problem. Praise God. Because there's one who defeats behemoths and leviathans. And I go to him. Understanding the last part of Job's response is vital as well. He says, I abhor... Inserted in the text there is myself and repent in dust and ashes. That, that, that word abhor, the word myself isn't there. And we, we kind of have to supply that and it's rightly placed in that. But part, part of what he's saying, what, what some commentators have said, not only does he abhor or reject himself, but it's, it's, it's the idea I'm nauseated with myself. That's how I'm repulsed by myself. And he's not looking at his skin. He's not looking at a boil-covered body that would repulse us. He's looking at his heart. He's looking at his, his, his words, his actions over the, the preceding chapters, the things that he said about God, the folly of his lips. That's what he rejects in himself. He hates what he had become in that episode as he was worn down by the pain and those things came spilling out. He didn't look on that and say, well, what would you have done in the same circumstance? Instead, in the presence of a holy God that he has just been introduced to in the way that he has, he is humbled as he has never been humbled before. His suffering is because of his sin. He has gotten smaller and God has gotten bigger. And again, this is the best place a believer can ever be. Do you remember what, what John the baptizer said in the presence of Christ when his disciples said, aren't you worried about all the baptisms they're beginning to do, these disciples of Jesus? What was his response? He must increase, I must decrease. Less of me, more of the Lord. Job has come to that same place and it's the best place to be. And so he says, I, I repent. Or 
does he say that? That's an interesting, interesting Hebrew word there. It's about a 50-50 split, especially when it's, and it comes in the form with the preposition that follows it. And it either means I repent or I change my mind, or it also means I'm comforted. And commentators go back and forth. If you have an ESV study Bible, you'll, you'll, or just an ESV Bible, you'll notice it's got a footnote that says, or comforted. And it's poetry. Praise God. That means poetry is meant to be responded to. And, and we should look at that and not, not even try and parse and say it's one or the other, but say, but there's an element of both that can be true there. Job has changed his mind. He's no longer thinking of God as a tyrant who is torturing him or as a mistaken ju- judge who's wrongly uh, uh, convicted him. He's now seeing God for who he is as sovereign Lord over all creation. He is celebrating that. He has changed his mind to embrace the suffering that's come to him. But even in that embrace, as he, as he was repenting of the position he held before and holding on to that new truth, he is comforted because of what he knows, because of what he sees. His soul has now come to be at rest because of how he understands God being for him. And don't miss when this is happening. When is he repenting? We, sometimes we think this is repenting in dust and ashes as sort of a visual thing of like put, you know, putting ashes on your head. And that's a de- demonstrable way to repent. But Job is literally sitting in dust and ashes. He's on the garbage heap, the, the burn pile where the broken, tr- uh, the broken pottery is that he's scraping himself with. This is the moment when he repents. When, when he is comforted. When he finds that this, this new understanding of God that changes everything. His wife hasn't stopped blaming him. His friends haven't stopped accusing him. The mockers and the dregs of society that he spoke of earlier who have made him the brunt of their jokes, they're still mocking away. He still has no sheep, no camels, no donkeys, and no children. And he still has boils covering him from head to toe, and yet he's at peace. His mind is right. He he, he has a clear understanding of the truth. Job is comforted. And the only explanation for Job's suffering and his peace in that suffering is God himself. It's a sad fact that the world doesn't get this, but it's also not really gotten so much in the church. And frankly, it's not gotten in this church among us. We have a hard time knowing the true God truly. How how do we know God? We know him as a cosmic enforcer. He's a God with one job to weigh your life in the scales, bad, suffer, good, rewards. We know him as a distant deity, the man upstairs, someone who's not too involved. I keep him at a convenient distance because I don't really want him poking around too much. I'll invoke his name periodically. We know him as God like me, someone made in our own image with similar taste. He approves of what you spend your money on, who you spend your time with. And conveniently, his, his enemies are the same as your enemies. Or we know him as God on demand, who's an idol to manipulate. You put a coin in and you get something out. I'll just, I, whenever I want something, I'll pray and it should happen. I'll exercise faith at that point in time. Or we know him as the God of the gaps, the explanation of things that we don't understand. When things aren't going in a way that is, is comprehensible to us, well, let's invoke God's name. And the problem with all those versions of God is, first off, that they are pagan idols. They're not the true God. But they also deprive you from the comfort of knowing the true God who is so sovereign and who is so active, who is caring about every single part of your life. Derek Thomas points out the right ways in which we know God, with which Job came to know God, and that is to know him as a God of power, 
who is unrivaled in strength and authority, whom the greatest evil in the world cannot begin to withstand. We know him as a God of greatness, who is comprehensive in his majesty, that extends to all parts of creation. There is no knowledge which escapes him. There's no part of creation in which he is not actively involved in what's going on. His being can allow for there being no such thing as an accident. And he is pure. He's free of sins. Not only does he have no accidents, but he he makes no mistakes such that there is no injustice with him. His wisdom is good. And he is also a God of grace. As much as any way the believer should know the true God is this, to know him as a God of grace who is loving and compassionate and giving towards his people. Again, the Apostle Paul understood this. He said, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Tonight, I hope you find comfort in the God that Job had been introduced to. That you know him better by virtue of, of how Job came to know him. And by virtue of the book in which Job has encountered him. Some of you might look at Job's repentance and his comfort and, and say, well, if I, if I met that God in that way, then I could probably do the same thing. If I had that kind of encounter out of the whirlwind and, and had these kind of glorious visions that he had, then I could probably do the same thing too. But you have received your own special revelation. You have met the divine warrior who defeats the chaos monsters. You have all of the wonderful works Things too wonderful for me, which Job said. You have those wonderful works recorded for you. And they're in this book that's in your lap. You have all the revelations you need. And you have been introduced above all to the divine warrior himself, to Jesus Christ. From the Old Testament, from the New Testament. The the Lord who is on every page. Peter testified, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. You are drawn near to God by Christ. Peter says, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews likewise says, God who at various times and various ways spoke in time past by the fathers, by the prophets, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, the heir of all things. You've met Christ. You've heard him speak into your life. You have his word. It belongs to you. Jesus said, you search the scriptures for in them. You think you have eternal life. These are they which testify to me. This book is all about him and what he has accomplished. Knowing the true God makes you truly thankful. Remember where we started. We mentioned the fact that we don't thank processes. We thank people. And we don't thank people who owe us. We thank people who have graced us. Yeah, Job still blessed the name of the Lord when he was lost. When he had lost all those things that were dear to him. But he doubted. And it took the end of the book where he comes to meet God in the way that he has. To come to that place of new thanks and new praise. And this is very much like the the writer of Psalm 73. Asaph wrote these words. He says, In vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. 
until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. It goes on, it says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. My brethren, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, and patience needs to have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, if you don't have the full picture, if you want more insight, pray to God. And he gives liberally and without reproach. He will grant you what you desire, which is more of him. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless and thank you for your revelation that you have loved us so much that you would show yourself to us in the person of your Son. We thank you for the divine word who has come into our world, who's taken on our flesh and who has suffered for our sakes. Oh Lord God, may we look to him not only to live and have spiritual life, but to live in this life with confidence and hope and encouragement, even in the greatest of suffering. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.